Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Bible in a Beer podcast. On today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Eric Demuse, headmaster of Chesterton Academy, and do a little bit of Lexio Divina on Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. A couple comments before we get into the episode. First, do apologize for the audio quality. Had to record this one virtually due to a scheduling conflict, so I was able to take a little bit of time, thus this episode being a little bit later than usual, uh, and scrub that out, but do think there are some really great insights. I was really happy to have Dr. Muse on this episode. Also, this will be the last episode of the season one of Bible and a Beer, so next couple months I'll be taking time to record new episodes, edit everything, and put it together. Really looking forward to some exciting new episodes. I already have some recorded that'll be launching a little bit later uh, this fall. So if you're not already subscribed, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of the great content that we have coming out later this fall for season two of Bible and a beer matthew chapter 5 verses 13 to 16 jesus said to his disciples you are the salt of the earth but if salt loses its taste with what can it be seasoned it is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot you are the light of the world a city set on a mountain cannot be hidden nor do they light a lamp and then put it under a bushel basket It is set on a lampstand where it gives light to all in the house. Just so your light must shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your heavenly father. All righty. Appreciate you reading through for joining, Eric. Looking forward to uh, getting a little bit of the the teacherly portion of the Lexia. Always good to have uh, a layperson's perspective on, on scripture as well. So, yeah, man. So just reading through, I mean, there's a couple of things that jump out to me. Is there anything in particular, a specific verse or anything from this portion of the Gospel of Matthew that jumps out to you? Yeah, you know, one of the things diving into this, uh, you know, again, that stuck out to me this time is this sense of, of salt as this sort of uh, this baseline, this foundational kind mm-hmm. of uh, ingredient that, that really, if it loses its taste and its savor, it can't be fixed in a certain sense, right? There's nothing, right? If we talk about a, uh, a meat or a dish or uh, a soup that, that doesn't have a lot of flavor, we can still add some salt to it. Yeah. Um, but if the salt itself loses its flavor and loses its taste, um, then it becomes kind of worthless in a certain sense. And I think this kind of stood out to me in, in this passage and this, this time through of just the sense of Jesus telling his disciples, you're kind of this, this uh, foundational thing Right. Yeah. But this this, yeah. this kind of fundamental piece uh, going out into into the culture and into civilization. Do you think it's um, like foreboding for us, though, as you know, as Christians, as Catholics to hear that and think, OK, like, yeah, we're the salt of the earth. We're like you said, we're the foundation. But um, if we lose our taste, like there's nothing else that can be done to, to bring it back. It, it is, seems a little foreboding, though. No? It is. It is. I think it is. I think there's a certain there's a certain weight that can be felt to it. I think there's a certain weight too when we think about what salt can do, right? There's kind of uh, famously the stories of uh, the Romans kind of leaving as, as they be, as they conquered lands and then they would leave those lands. One of the things that they would do uh, kind of in, in the legends is salt the fields yeah. so that basically it would kind of destroy the possibility of those fields to grow crops in the future. And so through that, they would kind of wipe out these civilizations and their long-term ability to recover from the destruction. So it's amazing to me, even the sort of it's foreboding in the sense of the impetus on us to, to be that salt, but also to be careful, right? Because salt can be used for, for great good, but salt can all has also this power to, to destroy in a certain sense. 
Yeah, that's actually, that's a great point because I think when you think of um, not to I guess get too deep into like the cooking analogies, but um, once you've added too much salt, there's really no going back. There's no going back, right? You know? <laughs> it's like game over at that point. So I, I think about that, and it's um, it is carefully measured. I think maybe in our approach to the gospel and the way that we lead our lives, uh, but especially our witness to others in the faith um, that sometimes like if, if you push too hard sometimes that, that can alienate people too and that's maybe that, that fine line that you try and ride of like you want to be a good witness to the gospel and let the holy spirit guide past that but um i can at least say for myself i think sometimes i think like i'm gonna make a difference to this person i'm gonna say something so smart and then you get to that point where you're like no that was dumb like that just alienated them right and you gotta think right i mean i mean this is kind of again i i think sticking with the cooking is actually helpful here right because the salt itself is is filled with this this sort of this sort of power, right? And that that's really what this is pointing at, right? Is is, is Christ is, is telling his disciples, you're the salt, you don't lose your taste, right? That that you're always kind of packing that punch, so to speak. But when we think about right a, a meal or something like that, if you're if you're a cook and you're having someone over for dinner and you serve them a meal, uh, your hope is not that they say, man, as I'm eating this, the salt really comes out or the salt is really good, right? You, yeah. You'd immediately take that as an insult that I that I did something wrong. So there's the sense in which you know we're imbued in this way with with uh, with Christ and with the gospel, and yet when we kind of act in this way in the culture and the society. Um, the, the praise and the glory doesn't come to us as the salt, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's not where the glory comes. The salt plays an integral role in this, but the salt is not something that is is uh, you know put on a pedestal in this way. Yeah. Um, it's kind of hidden in a certain sense, and that's where it's kind of genius lies. Yeah, yeah, no, that's beautiful. And you think of uh, what John the Baptist says in that regard too, like let let myself decrease so that he may increase. So, but to that point, then I guess kind of rolling off of that. Christ says that you don't light a lamp and then put it under a bushel basket, right? You put it on the lampstand. Mm-hmm. Um, so to that point, then, like, how do you how do you balance that, right? Because he's calling us to, in a sense, be light for others, be that guide, be visible, but then, like you said, also kind of decrease and and have that sort of um, fade in the background. Totally right. I mean, this this image of of the lamp, right? And, and again, especially when we're when we're thinking of when Christ is talking here, right? The, the, the lamps, right? This is a fire, right? This isn't something where we're flicking a switch uh, like we would in our homes. Um, you know, this is this is a fire that we're we're kind of lighting the, the fire lamp here, right? Lighting the oil lamp. And he talks about this, right? Yeah, the sense that we we are the light of the world. A city set on a mountain cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and then put it under a bushel basket. And so I think there is this sense, right, in which when Christ is kind of radiating through us, that, that there is a sense in which in which we can't hide it, right? I mean, that's that's where the kind of the second analogy is kind of playing a little differently than the first one, in my opinion, right? Yep. The way that salt is functioning in the first and the way that, that the light is functioning in the second is that, you know, we think of this sort of stained glass window, the famous kind of the classic example of the way in which kind of it's illumined by a light other than itself, right? And it's kind of radiates that light through itself and it can't be hidden, right? It's going to be there, it's going to be present um, and it's going to radiate that light. But again, the, the, the source of that light is always something else. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, when you think about stained glass too, is that it still allows the light through, but in very much a way still obscures what is behind the glass. So insofar as, you know, keeping ourselves hidden behind the stained glass, right, that, that we're not the person that is visible and obviously Christ being the source of the light. But it's interesting. Yeah, that's a really good like, analogy to think of that we shouldn't be looking to make ourselves visible. It should just be the, the light of Christ that's shining through us. Right. And, and showing that beautiful image or showing that, that beautiful um, art that they have on there. Right. And we have to remember, right, again, throughout the scriptures, 
just like with salt, there's kind of this twofold element of salt as something which gives gives taste and life, and salt as something which which can which can also destroy. Yeah. Um, with with light, we have right light has this power to reveal and unveil, and yet we remember right when Moses and Joshua go up Sinai. What is it's a cloud of fire that kind of obscures their vision of God, right? They can't actually get a clear vision of God on Sinai because this cloud of fire and smoke kind of obscures that. I mean, I think even liturgically, when we think of the way that that light illumines through the candles, but then the smoke of the incense is going to kind of, in some ways, obscure our view of what's going on. Um, It can kind of have this this twofold uh, play as well. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that. That makes me think I'm... I could be mistaken, but I feel like, is it the Byzantine rite, um, or maybe one of the Eastern rites actually kind of conceals during the consecration, you're not able to, to see it? I, maybe I'm misremembering. Is it the Byzantine? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if you if you go to a Byzantine liturgy, you're going to see kind of a, a wall of icons, right, with a doorway okay. at where the priests enter, and that's where kind of the sacred mysteries take place, the consecration, um, and kind of the heart of the, of the liturgy there. And so there's always been this sense um in liturgy and this goes all the way back to to the old testament and kind of carries on through in the christian tradition of 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 kind of both revealing and obscuring in the liturgy right it communicates that god is someone who shows himself and reveals himself to us and comes to us in jesus christ and yet the liturgy reminds us that as isaiah says right god says i am a hidden god right truly i am a hidden god and so he he never, he, you know, we can't handle seeing his face. It's really the, the end yeah. of the day, right? Even even coming in Christ, right? When God comes to earth in Christ, he has to come sort of veiled in human flesh. Um, so that so we, we can't really look upon his divinity, properly speaking, yeah. until we, we experience that in heaven. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point, man. Yeah, you think about all these things that are veiled from us. So there's still the understanding that there is something uh, beautiful and transcendent that's happening, obviously, at the altar or just in our lives that, that Christ acts through, that the Lord acts through. But there is still something that is um, unattainable and not in a bad way, but in this world until we experience the Lord in the beatific vision, right? Because that's the ultimate end, the ultimate good. Absolutely. I mean, we think as kids, right, the game we play of like staring at the sun, right? I mean, the sun illumines everything, but when you yeah. look right into it, like your eyes are watering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is this is really kind of the mystery of, of God. And again, it's not that God doesn't want to reveal us or that he's kind of being off putting. Um, it's that in our mortality, we, we can't handle it. Yeah. Um, and so there is going to be always some sort of so both it's both revelatory and uh, the realization that we we see through a glass darkly in yeah, this life. Yeah. Exactly. So one other thing I wanted to bring up here, um, let me find the passage again. He says, uh, a city set on a mountain cannot be hidden. Um, and I was thinking about this a little bit beforehand um, of just like why people or cities are built on mountains, especially, you know, in older ages, that was very, very common. Yeah. What, what's your thought on that? Again, there's so many reasons why, right? Obviously, you know, militarily, right, a high point, you can see what's coming at you in certain cultures and civilizations, and a lot of cultures and civilizations, right? Mountains are also considered to be places where you 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 get closer to God, right? In these high places, yeah. um, this is this is in the pagan world. This is you know, throughout the the scriptures, right? Everything from Moses on Sinai to the Sermon on the Mount to right. So you have all of these instances of so many reasons why kind of cities again that there's a way that they're both visible, but then they can also see 
beyond. You know, this uh, this last year, a uh, good engineering friend of mine uh, helped me build a treehouse in the backyard. So we had like a fence up in our yard and we built a treehouse, you know, and it's this, it's this kind of funny thing because, you know, we have a fence around our yard so the neighbors can't really see in our yard, but we have this treehouse, you know, so we can kind of see into all of our neighbors' <laughs> yards, right? So I wonder what they're thinking. <laughs> but uh, but this is this is kind of you know uh, what what a city on a hill is 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 designed for right the city on a hill can kind of look look down it's both a shining light but it's also something that can kind of look down and see what's what's around it to see what's what's coming and also again the sense of of the sacred being being kind of geographically high up in a certain sense. My wife and I went to Scotland over Thanksgiving and one of the things that when we were there we went to Edinburgh and they have a castle uh, that's perched like at the top highmost point. And it's been there for, you know, something like a thousand years now or something crazy like that. And it's, you know, it's constantly under siege, but always rebuilt and always reused. And it was a, such a pain in the butt to get to. You're like, you're wheezing, walking up there, <laughs> it's, you know, way up there, man. But it, there's some sort of attainment, but also some sort of just awe that goes into it too. And it's hard to explain, but you can see farther than you could ever imagine. And there's things you can't completely see off in the distance. And then there's all the things that you've experienced walking in the streets that it's just a completely different viewpoint. And there's something about that, I think, when we think of you know theology and we're thinking of Christ is like, it's this thing that's visible, but also this thing that we're trying to attain and that promises us more. So I think of like salvation history, like when we reach that pinnacle, you're finally able to see everything laid bare before you and you'll fully understand it, but you can't, you know, reach that obviously until we God willing get to heaven. Totally. Totally. I mean, I think the the perspective from that height is, is really, really important. You know, when we get, when we teach the students about the, the impact of grace on the virtues and especially on the virtue of prudence, I'll kind of, I use an example of if, if you're in the woods and you see two paths and you're trying to figure out which one to go down, right? You may try to kind of use whatever is at your disposal from your perspective in the woods to make that decision. You might say, this, this path looks a little more well-trodden, so it's likely a good one. I'll take that path. Now let's pretend we're, you know, we have a bird's eye view and we can see that the path to the left has a grizzly bear right around the corner beyond my view. All of a sudden, the decision is very clear which path I'm going to take and which path I'm not going to take, right? I'm going to the right. (laughs) But I couldn't have known that kind of in my perspective where I was in the wilderness. And I think that's one of the things that grace allows us to get, it elevates us to kind of see things in this kind of somewhat way from God's perspective and allows to help us put things in perspective um, from that from that view. I mean, I think one of the great images in the scriptures, uh, it, it flips this a little bit is uh, kind of reflecting on, on Peter being crucified upside down, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's this sense of, you know, G.K. Chesterton says that like, it was there that Peter finally saw exactly what Christ was proclaiming, right? Yeah. That the whole world is hanging on the mercy of God yeah. right? when you get yeah. upside down. All yeah. of a sudden, the perspective changes and you see things as they truly are. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Uh, and for anybody who thinks the bear thing is is goofy, um, lest we forget, I don't know if it was uh, somewhere in Kings, Second Kings, maybe I think a she bear is involved. Oh, so. a she bear, a she bear, a bunch of little kids are making fun of, uh, making fun. Of, I think it's uh, Elisha, and yeah, he's uh, and he curses them, and a she bear comes out and and, and consumes them. So yeah. <laughs> one, of the, one of the great moments in the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs>